Good morning. Just a quick housekeeping note in case you came in late. Uh, next week, if you're here, you're going to be disappointed. Actually, after my message this morning, and you're here this week, you may just be, be disappointed. But what, next week, you'll definitely be disappointed because we're not going to be here. We're going to be probably at this time in line at the food trucks down there. One service next week, 10 a.m., uh, the youth are taking over the place, so it's going to be a blast. And then uh, we've got food trucks and games and fellowship and all that going on uh, after that service. So mark your calendars, one service, 10 a.m. next week. And then uh, we'll return to our regularly scheduled programming, as they say, as we move into the fall and winter months. I'm Jack. Uh, many of you know that I am the ministry leader for the Celebrate Recovery ministry here. And um, let me just take a, a second or two to talk about Celebrate Recovery. I think that word recovery can be a barrier for some of you in maybe checking us out. And I want to uh, maybe give you a little bit of a different look at, at CR. We are all in need of recovery because we have a sin nature that we need to recover from. And while Jesus paid the penalty, we're still in that presence of sin. And so we all need Recovery, And if you don't think you have a sin nature and you don't think you need recovery, well, then you're in denial and you need recovery. So see, we're going to get you either way how that works. But seriously, CR is a ministry for everyone because everyone has hurts. Um, whether those are hurts in the past, whether those hurts from this morning, we all have hurts. And some of those hurts we are able to overcome and move past pretty easily. But some of those hurts in our lives may have resulted in feelings of shame or guilt. Some of those hurts may um, be causing resentments in us that's poisoning our mind and hearts. They may be responsible for broken relationships. They may be responsible for addictions or substance abuse, and in some cases, even identity issues. But the fact is we all have those hurts. CR can help. As someone who has been hurt, you may have in turn hurt others. CR can help. It's popular in, in recovery and mental health circles, the phrase hurt people hurt people. And so CR can help. And so check us out. Um, and I, and I'll, give, I'll give you a warning. We're a weird group of oversharing rebels, so be prepared when you come in, okay? You ask somebody how they're doing in CR and you might get fine, you might get good, but you also might get, um, I've been struggling with lust all day. I'm glad I'm here. And that's not something we're used to hearing out in the regular world. So we are odd, we're transparent, we're real. We are not gonna fix you. We will support you. We will love you. Um, we will ask to be held accountable and we will hold you accountable. So check us out. And I will say this, you are not going to attend one Wednesday night with us and everything's gonna be fine. You're gonna need to give us, I'll say six months, how about that? And you might think, well, that's a lot of time. And it is, but you're worth it. If you have hurts in your life that have continually caused some of these issues I've talked about, you are worth six months of your life to come in and check out what this ministry has to offer for you. And I promise you, if you don't feel better about yourself, if you don't feel closer to Jesus, if you don't feel that you're communicating in a more transparent manner, and perhaps if some of those hurts have not been eliminated or alleviated, we will refund your misery, no charge, okay? So that's the deal. So check us out. Now, every week when we end our large group teaching and testimony uh, portion of Celebrate Recovery, we end in prayer. 
And we end in the same prayer every week, the, the serenity prayer, the prayer for serenity. And some of you may know uh, part of the serenity prayer, but, but there likely a lot of you don't know the full prayer. And so the, you'll probably know this, this first part, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And so that's a part that a lot of people actually think is the prayer. But there's more to it than that. And there's a lot of wisdom in those, in those first three lines. There's a lot to meditate on. There's a lot to look to scripture and see the parallels in. But the prayer goes on to say, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. So that's the full prayer. We pray that every week. And there's not a week that goes by that I am not meditating or thinking about some part of that prayer. Sometimes that's a conscious effort on my part because something is just coming to my mind. Sometimes it's just God whacking me on the side of the head saying, hey, how about accepting hardship as a pathway to peace instead of whining, Jack? Sometimes that's the way it works as well. And uh, as I was preparing for this, this teaching, one line in particular kept resurfacing in the front of my mind. And that's where I want to kind of ground us this morning. And that is trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. Trusting that God will make all things right if we surrender to his will. And I think, um, at least in my life, there's a couple of things to get in the way of that. One, while I believe that, I need God to make all things right by Tuesday or by next month or by Christmas. And so I start putting time constraints on trusting that God will make all things right. And that's not trusting. That's me trying to control. The other one is, and this is a little more scary for me, is I know in my heart that God will make all things right. He knows the end from the beginning, in other words. I have this sneaking suspicion, though, that God making all things right and what Jack thinks all things right looks like are two very different things. I may not like, in other words, Jack may not like, even though it is all things right. And so once again, I try to pull back control and try to get God to make all things right according to me. So maybe you struggle with some of those things as well. And we're gonna see that as we look at our chapters this morning, we'll be in Genesis 33 and 34, that Jacob, on the one hand, is trusting, showing that he's trusting that God will make all things right by surrendering, and yet, he also, we also take a look at kind of the tragic consequences when he decides that maybe he needs to pull back that trust from God. And so that's kind of where we're going. So if you uh, want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33, let me just kind of give a brief catch up here. Some chapters ago, as, as if you've been with us on this, this Genesis journey, we know that Jacob uh, tricked his father, Isaac into giving him Esau, his brother's blessing. And, and this did not make Esau happy. In fact, Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob decides to flee, probably a good idea, and he leaves, heads out to his uncle's place. And he started his own family. He's worked for his uncle. He's been away for 20 years. God comes to him in a dream and says, you need to go back to the land of your fathers, Jacob. And oddly enough, Jacob actually obeys. Trust God. Okay, so he's, he's starting that journey back home. And he knows that Esau is there. And so uh, he also knows the last time he saw his brother, brother wanted to kill him. So that's causing him um, 
Well, as I said, the clinical term, Jacob is freaking out, okay, at this point. He sends off some emissaries ahead to kind of take a look-see, and they report back, yeah, Esau's coming, and he's got 400 men with him. Once again, the stress level rises. Jacob starts sending gifts ahead of him to kind of soften up Esau. He divides up his, his uh, family and, 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 and servants and all that, uh, hoping that if one gets attacked, the other will get away. Finally, he just gets to the end of his rope. And he has an encounter with God. As I call it, Jesus actually has a come to Jacob moment. We talked about, Bill talked about that last week, the Christophany of this man wrestling with God, Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. And he gets a very clear picture, Jacob does, of God, his power, and where Jacob fits on the food chain. And he submits. I'm all in. I get it. And so that's where we pick up the action in 33. Verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants and their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And so while he is probably convinced that this is this, maybe his last moments on earth, and you might, you might give Jacob a hard time about kind of this prioritization of family that he does, um, but if you, have to, if you put yourself in his shoes, what, what would you do? Maybe he's thinking, you know, Jacob's wrath will mostly be on him. He's gone, maybe some of the family, but perhaps somebody will survive. He knows that the hope of the world is coming through his line somehow, but, and he's going to trust God in that. And so he, he sets up this arrangement. Verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Remember, they haven't seen each other in 20 years. Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And so we have a reunion. We have restoration. We have Jacob leading, okay? Once again, say what you will about how he kind of stacks his family there, but he goes out in front. He's in front of everybody, and, 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 and he bows down, and we see his family following him as leader of household, leader of, of, of household under uh, a, a man who trusts that God will make all things right. Now Esau wants this reunion to continue, and he suggests, he says, hey, why don't, you, why don't we get all of our you know, peoples together here and let's all head back home as a family. Um, and at this point, for whatever reason, Jacob decides to kind of go his own way. Maybe it's just that relief he has after um, thinking he's this close to death and then it, it doesn't happen. And, and, and I think in that sigh or in that pause or in that relief, we can sometimes allow the enemy to get a foothold into our lives. You, you may have had this experience. I mean, let me liken it to, let's say you're, you've got a, a, a potential serious medical diagnosis and the tests are out right now. They're running the tests and you are waiting for the results of those tests. And you're with God a lot in that time. 
you are, you're talking to him, you're finding comfort in him, you know that all things, he will make all things right. And that may not mean that you're, that you're you know, let's say cancer free or whatever it is, but you trust that he will make all things right. And then the tests come back and you're a clean bill of health and you sigh, you, you, that relief. And that's when the enemy starts saying, well, of course they came back fine. You eat well, you exercise, you're a good person and God drifts away. And so maybe that's what, what we're seeing here, but Jacob deceives his brother and says, you know what? We got a lot of kids. They're running around all over the place, hard to control them. We got a lot of livestock that's young. If we drive them too hard, they're gonna die. So we, you go on ahead, we'll follow you. And he says, okay, I mean, sure, well, I can leave some people with you if you want. He says, no, 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 you go, we'll follow. And we know that's a lie because if we look at verse 18, it says, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city and from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father. So Shechem is a prince, which we'll talk about in the next chapter. Shechem is also the name of the town. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. That means God the God of Israel. Because remember, he was also renamed Israel back after that wrestling match. Once again, why Jacob makes this call, we don't know. It's likely because the enemy has said, you don't think Jacob really is looking to restore this relationship, do you? He's gonna get you around the next bend and that's when the massacre is gonna occur. Could be something you know, just like that. And so part of trusting that God will make all things right is that we trust or requires us to trust that he can restore any relationship, okay? And once again, the things that I'm talking about this morning, we talk about trusting that he'll make, these are not like the three things, there's many things. These are just kind of, as I pulled out of from the text to, to today to kind of bring to you, requires that he can restore any relationship. Relationships are important to us and relationships can, can, can get us in trouble, especially damaged and broken relationships. That is an excellent place for Satan to get a foothold in and to start taking us down paths that we should not go down. Paths of infidelity, paths of deception, paths of prideful vengeance. And so part of trusting that he makes all things right is that we trust him with those relationships in our lives. And we trust him especially with those that are maybe still broken or still damaged. We forgive, he restores. We know he can restore because he's done it. He's done it with the most important relationship and probably each of us who are at least believers, each of our lives, he's restored that relationship between the father and us, between himself and us. And he did that with great sacrifice, sending his only son to live among us. He's 100% man, 100% God. Living the perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice because we had walked away from God, we as humanity. And that disobedience needs punishment because we have a perfectly just God. Jesus lived the perfect life, therefore being the perfect sacrifice for God to put all of that punishment, all that sin onto him and punish that so that we could live essentially in God's eyes as, 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 as free, that forgiveness. So we know he's a God of restoration. And we know also, of course, that Jesus rose three days later, overcoming sin, overcoming death, and allowing that relationship to be fully restored. So trust him with your relationships. And, and we see 
once again in Jacob, we see him building an altar. That's a good thing. And yet, it seems like he's building the altar so he's got one foot on the path of righteousness, all in for God, and then, but the other foot's over here deceiving his brother and actually not following God's instruction. Remember, God is saying, you need to go back home. Shechem is about 30 miles maybe north of where he's supposed to be. So he's so close, but he's not there. And so he's got another foot on that path of destruction. Um, maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe that's you. I know that's me from time to time where I've got one foot in Jack and one foot in God. And uh, that, that one foot in Jack can get me in trouble and has gotten me in trouble. And we're going to see how that plays out in chapter 34. So I have a disclaimer for you before we get into 34. This comes right from Scripture. You may be familiar with this Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as we get into chapter 34, remember that disclaimer. So here we go. It's a doozy. Uh, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And some of your translations may say violated her. And some of your other translations may say raped her. Verse 3. And his soul was drawn to Dinah the, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Well, that was disturbing. There is so much wrong in those five verses, it's kind of hard to know where to begin. And there's lots of questions as well. And um, I'll, I'll boil it down to just one. As a dad with daughters, why doesn't Jacob just go ballistic here? He does nothing. He does not lead. He's completely void of any sort of leadership. The leadership that we just saw as he encounters his brother Esau, certain that he's probably going to die. He doesn't lead as the head of the household. He doesn't lead emotionally by being a comfort to anybody, Dinah, Leah, anybody. He does not lead with action. He does not lead spiritually either. Prayer, doesn't talk to God, doesn't get mad at God. And as I mentioned, I'm a dad with daughters. I will not sit up here and tell you that I know exactly what I would do if that were in my situation. I don't know. I would hope that it would be a godly response, but I've got a pretty short fuse sometimes, especially in emotional things like this. But I would not do nothing. And so we'll come back to that as we move on in the, in the, in the teaching today. In fact, it's actually Hamar the rapist's father, who makes the first move here. Hamar and Shechem come to Jacob, and, and, and his, now his sons are in from the field, and they say, um, we, uh, Shechem would like to marry your daughter. And, and Shechem says, you know, name your price. I will pay anything to make this happen. 
And since Jacob has apparently abdicated any leadership position here, instead of he answering, it's actually his sons. And we see that in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Once again, a disgrace to us. What about Dinah? But that's a whole other a whole other issue. And so the brothers, the sons, lay out their demands. Shechem, you need to be circumcised. Hamar, you need to be circumcised. And all of the men in the city need to be circumcised. Because part of the deal that Hamar and Shechem brought him as well was saying, hey, uh, let's be one people. Let's get together. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make our daughters available for your sons to marry and vice versa. And we'll just be one big, happy, extremely dysfunctional family. Um, and so every male needs to be circumcised. Well, Shechem goes all in. He gets circumcised right away, and Hamer and Shechem then bring all of the, t- the city men together, men of the city together at the city gate, and launch into, I guess, what would probably be the greatest sales pitch in all of human history. <laughs> and they sell it basically by saying, this is going to be an economic boom for our city. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be intermarried. They've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of stuff. We'll, we'll, this will be awesome. We just need you to do this one teeny tiny little thing. And all of the men go for it. So all of the men in Shechem are circumcised. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Just a side note here, city in, in the usage here, city would have been any kind of fortified encampment, let's say, okay? Don't think of New York or don't think of Tualatin when you think of city. Think of uh, if you're watching an old Western and there's a fort, you know, with the logs, with the pointy tops, you know, kind of thing. Might be 100 people in this city. 25 or 30 might be men. So, couple of guys and their servants, especially when the rest of the men of the town are, are down and out, um, not inconceivable. So just, just, just as a, a kind of a note there. So they kill Shechem, they kill Hamor, they kill all the males. That would mean boys, I'm assuming. Then the sons of Hamor, so now the rest of the, the brothers come in and their servants and they take their flocks and their herds, they take anything of value, they destroy the rest, and they take the women and the girls and put them in slavery. So you may be wondering, as I did, why is this chapter in the Bible? I'll refer you back to the disclaimer, see? But why? And there, there, there are any number of reasons why, if you look at commentaries and scholarship and everything on this, let me, let me put one forward to you. I think it is a warning about what can happen when broken people living in a broken world decide that they're going to make all things right instead of trusting that God will. And so trusting that God will make all things right requires that we trust in God's perfect justice. 
not our own flawed emotional reaction. Romans 12, 17 and 19. Repay no one for evil, uh, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And I get it. And, and, and this, this is not to say that um, we don't need justice, we don't need a criminal justice system, we don't need you know, all those things. I'm just pointing out the fact that um, we went a little over the top in this, in this story. And I get it, it's hard to do because those of us that are created in his image are also created with a, an inherent hardwired sense of justice that comes from our heavenly father. And that's whether you're a believer or not, that's everybody. And you can, you can see this, you can show a non-believer and a believer uh, video, let's say, of, 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 of a young child being physically abused and both will have the same reaction. Both will be disgusted. Both will be angry. Both will want the perpetrator of that violence to pay. The believer knows why they feel that way and who's responsible for it. So we're all hardwired with that. The enemy though, like he does with many things, many of the gifts that God gives us, will take and rewire that or pervert that God-given sense of justice into revenge or rage or oppression or tyranny or any of those other things where we may go too far. And you might say, well, well yeah, but doesn't it say an eye for an eye? In the Bible? And yes, it does. It does say that. It says that in, in Exodus. It says it in Leviticus. It says it again in Deuteronomy in some form or another. But if you, if you pay attention to the context of that, you will see that it is in the context of limiting man's, or, or limiting the enemy's perversion of that hardwired sense of justice. It's, it's usually... Uh, you know, coaching or, or guidance to the courts. It's also to, to protect the marginalized in society from the powerful so that there is some set of rules that doesn't mean that we just get to treat some people how we want and other people, we treat them differently. And so it's, it's absolutely uh, in there, but, but, but realize the context of that because we don't, what we see in Genesis 34 is an eye for an eye and the mass murder of all the men. And that's um, not, not justified. Bringing it down to our world, because the, the events in Genesis 34 are dramatic, are shocking. And, and, and frankly, if, if they make you feel uncomfortable, you should. That's that hardwired sense of justice that's tingling in you. Um, but bringing it into our world, I think that this perversion of justice by the enemy is at the very heart of things like cancel culture, of things like intolerance of some groups in our country versus other groups. I think it's the enemy whispering in our ears that our way is the right way, our way is the only way and it is up to us and only to us to make sure that the guilty pay, to make sure that those that don't agree with us pay. 
I think that's what's at the root of that. Because the enemy knows that hurt people hurt people. Let me just bring this down to my life, how this looks in my life, this idea of justice and me not trusting that God will make all things right. We have some friends, longtime friend. I've known this man from, since high school. And we've known he and his wife since they were married 27 years ago or whatever it is. Love these people. Um, they have a son, an adult son, who's, who's transitioning now. He wants to be a woman. And um, this is, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, I've got to tell them all this justice. I've got to, I've got to speak truth to them. And, 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 if, and, and we have had some truthful conversations. I'm not going to skirt around the truth. But I'm getting so consumed. Well, what do I need to say? How do I need to say this? I, 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 I've got to let them know. And I'm driving to work a couple of months ago wrestling with this. And I have this freeing thought. Because I'm getting, this is, this is stressing me. I'm having this freeing thought that says, you know, if you just spent time loving these guys, loving their son, how freeing would that be? instead of you figuring out what you need to say to make sure they don't think, fill in the blank. And God's just saying to me, I will make all things right. You do not need to worry about that. You do not need to handle that. You need to love. You see, with love, there's the, there's the opening that maybe one day, I might have a conversation with my friend's son and he might say to me that um, these changes that he's made didn't make him feel the way he thought they would, didn't do for his heart and his soul what he thought they would. And I have then, because of love, have an opening to share the fact that I know I've tried that too. I haven't tried the transitioning thing, but I tried that with alcohol in my life. I tried that with deception. I tried that with creating an image of myself that was completely untrue. I know what it's like to think, if I just do this, everything will be better. And maybe that then leads to a gospel conversation. So God is saying, trust that I am perfectly just. I will make all things right. You know, an eye for an eye is used again in Scripture in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, if they take your tunic, give them your cloak. But I say, if they force you to walk a mile, you offer to walk two. But I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And I'm not saying my friends or their son or my enemies, but just that, that, that idea. You see, Jesus is not concerned with limiting our sin nature with more commandments, more rules, more restrictions, more laws. He instead focused on killing the source of that sin nature with his sacrifice on the cross and with, our, with his instruction to us to love, to love the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we get towards the back end of the message today, I wanna, I wanna go back to um, earlier in the chapter in 34 where we looked at Jacob doing nothing after the kidnapping and the, and the rape of his only daughter, Dinah. And as I mentioned, we see a complete lack of leadership with Jacob, especially spiritual leadership. 
And we need to be spiritual leaders, especially if you're a man in the household, spiritual leader, but all of us need to be spiritual leaders. Jacob has just had a physical encounter with God a wrestling match with God, and yet he does not turn to him in this time of darkness. He doesn't turn to Leah, his wife. He doesn't turn to Dinah. He doesn't turn to his sons. He turns rather to himself. If you look at the very end of chapter 34, I don't have it up here, but Jacob is not upset really that his sons committed mass murder and used a covenant sign as a trick. He's concerned with what the surrounding peoples will think of him. And they're probably going to come and attack him. And they're going to take his stuff. And that's going to impact him. Me, me, me. Genesis 34 also gives us a glimpse of what can happen when we remove God from our lives. In fact, you may have noticed this. You may not have. God is not mentioned once in all of chapter 34. Not by name, not by inference. Fingerprints nowhere to be found. He is completely absent. That's the only chapter in Genesis we see that in. In fact, it's one of the few chapters in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that has no God in it whatsoever. And I think that God inspired Moses to write this story as a further exclamation of what happens, as I said, if we take God out of our lives. And so trusting that he will make all things right, trusting that God will make all things right requires us to turn to him and return to him. You know, this is one of those concepts that, as Bill said a few weeks ago, is simple but not simplistic. So don't just gloss over it. If it were simplistic, you'd never hear a Christian say, yeah, I feel like I've been kind of walking away from God or I feel like I'm distant from God. If it were simplistic, everybody would be a believer. If it were simplistic, you wouldn't find yourself with one foot in the camp of Jacob, or in my case, one foot in the camp of Jack, both feet would always be on the path with God. In my experience, Jacob is the norm, not the exception. Meaning that if you and I are honest with ourselves, there is, depending on the day, either a little bit of Jacob in you or a whole lot of Jacob in you. The Jacob that relies on his own understanding instead of seeking God's wisdom, the Jacob that doesn't act when he should or acts first and prays, if at all, later. The Jacob that looks at God's plan as um, a really good first draft instead of trusting that God will make all things right if he surrenders to that plan. That's me. God should rename me Jacob. How about that? That's me on any given day. But the good news is, not the good news, but good news is that Jacob is also the norm that in spite of all those things, God continued to pursue and bless and love and wrestle with him. Just as he has done with you and I, and he will continue to do with you and I if we trust that he will make all things right if we surrender to his will. As we close in prayer this morning, if you are here today in the building, if you're out there online this morning and you are ready to make that turn to God, 
I want to give you the opportunity to do that as we close out today. And if, any of you, if anybody else here in the room or, or online is maybe thinking, I need to make that return to God, um, take some time in prayer for that. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I know that you, and, 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 and if, you, if you are one that is turning to God, you might just pray something like this in, in your heart. Is that, God, I know you love me and I know you've been pursuing me while I have been running from you. As I have tried to find you in things like money, in relationships, in career, and nothing seems to fill that ache I have. Lord, I want to turn my life and my will over to you. I thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sins, and I ask for forgiveness for those sins. Father, let me live in your will, not mine. I pray these things in your name. Amen. If you either, if you're in the room today and you prayed that prayer with me, <clears throat> I would encourage you as you head out this morning to stop by the center uh, area in the atrium, the next steps counter. Some folks there that have some, just some basic information for you. You made that choice, now what? You know, what are the next steps? And there's just some resources that they have for you that can help you begin to build the relationship with God. It's not about knowing more about God, it's about knowing God. And so how do you develop that relationship? You spend time with him. So I'll give you some resources on how to do that. Um, if, if you're returning to God, welcome back. Um, and if you're online with us this morning and, and you, uh, you've made that decision to turn your life over to God, you can go to rollinghills.org slash next steps and we can get you, if you give us some basic information, that same, that same list of resources so that you can once again begin your relationship with God. God bless you this morning. We will continue on in our worship.